It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. The streets of Marble Township, Pennsylvania, were enjoyed by the families that lived in that idyllic small town. During the hot summer months, the sidewalks were decorated with hopscotch games, bicycles, and kickballs. On the morning of August 15, 1975, eight-year-old Gretchen Harrington set out along Lawrence Road for her morning walk to Vacation Bible School. Her father waved goodbye, watching from the porch of their brick home. It was the last time he would see his young daughter, and the last day that the families of Marple Township felt safe in their community. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Gretchen Harrington never made it to the Trinity Chapel Christian Reformed Church that day. Fear permeated through neighboring communities in Pennsylvania as the search for Gretchen ensued. On October 14th, nearly two months after she went missing, Gretchen's small body was found in Ridley Creek State Park. She had been brutally murdered. For almost 50 years, the cold case haunted Delaware County. But on July 24th, 2023, the community finally had answers. Delaware County District Attorney Jack Stolsteimer announced that charges had been brought against 83-year-old David Sansra, the pastor of the church where Gretchen's Bible camp took place. D.A. Stolsteimer grew up in a neighboring town and remembers the tragedy well. He joins me now to discuss how he's bringing justice for Gretchen, the Harrington family, and the community all these years later. District Attorney Jack Stolsheimer, I'm honored to have you here with us today and really looking forward to hearing so many details about what is frankly a horrific historical case that we might finally get closure to. Describe for us when and how this case first landed on your desk. Yeah, first of all, thank you for for the time and the attention to this case, because I think it is a very important matter for people to realize how law enforcement does its work and why it's so important that we do so, uh, and especially in today's challenging times. Uh, This is a case that recently came to my attention. I remember a little bit back in the day when this actually happened in August of 1975. I was living in the town as a 12-year-old kid in the town next door to where this uh, kidnapping took place, uh, where Gretchen Harrington became a victim of David Sandstra. So it was newsworthy at the time in our area of Delaware County, um, but it's been one of these matters that unfortunately has been unsolved for 48 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to your point, I mean, the best part of the story is the ability to bring closure uh, for people both in the community, but particularly from the people in the Harrington family who are still alive, her siblings, uh, for example, for them to finally know 
what happened uh, to Gretchen, and also to know that she now is resting in peace because we are in the process of bringing her killer to justice. Uh, and in my faith, I believe that people can't really rest in peace uh, until we do that part of our work. And so I just want to give this a big shout out to the Pennsylvania State Police officers who brought this case. And Emily, it recently came to my attention because a couple of state troopers who are in charge of the uh, state police's cold case unit in this region just did incredible work. Uh, oftentimes when you see these cold case uh, cases being some of these days, there's some breakthrough in technology or something like that that, that changes the dynamic. That's not what happened in this case. This is just old-fashioned, great police investigative work by a couple of Pennsylvania State Troopers. One's a corporal named Andrew Martin. The other is his partner, Eugene Trey. These guys got this case, I think, around 2017, uh, and they did what you should do in a cold case. They started the investigation afresh. They re-interviewed every single witness. They didn't take anything for granted that had been done from 1975 until the day they started. They came at it with a new pair of eyes and a new brain cells, and they went to work and just followed the evidence. Uh, and in doing so, they re-interviewed a witness who remembered that she was a friend not only of the victim, Gretchen Harrington, but of Harrington's best friend, David Zantra, the killer's daughter. So Gretchen Harrington, the victim, is best friends with David Zantra's daughter, and David ends up being the killer. Um, this third uh, young lady at the time wrote in her diary how creepy she thought David Zantra was. And in fact, she related a story, which is in the affidavit, about having a sleepover at the Zantra house and being awakened by him touching her inappropriately. And then he ran out of the bedroom. Uh, and she talked to her friend about it, David's daughter, who said this happens sometimes. So she wrote that contemporaneously as a 12-year-old girl or 8-year-old girl, I think she was at the time, uh, in 1975. But because these tr troopers were, were re-interviewing her after all these years, she remembered that that diary existed and she got that diary. And that's what led them to put David Zantra as a prime suspect. But... The extra step the state police, these two troopers did beyond that was they decided to find David Zanstra and go interrogate him to face him with what they've been told he tried to do to this young lady, sexually assault her, uh, and then also see where how much further he would go. Uh, and again, incredible police work. They got him to admit not only that he had inappropriately touched uh, this confidential informant, but then he confessed and as Trooper Trace said, it seemed like it was a release for him after all of these 48 years to finally tell the truth uh, that he was indeed the killer of this little girl who he knew, who was his daughter's best friend, who was the daughter of a fellow preacher at a church just a few doors away from him. Together, these two churches ran this Bible camp this little girl went to. And Emily, who got in his car that day only because she thought it was a safe place. He offered her a ride to Bible camp. And how could she possibly say no to the father of her best friend, the man of the cloth? Uh, and unfortunately, that's when the evil happened. Before we dive in to some of those details that you've touched on there, 
Can you take us back to what was a horrible day in August of 1975 and describe for us what did happen to Gretchen Harrington and how it rocked the town and when and how her body was found? Yeah, absolutely. So this all took place on one stretch of road in this town called Broomall, uh, in right next door to where I live in Havertown. Uh, and the two churches were adjoining, you know, two, two properties together. Uh, and the Bible camp that had been run in conjunction of these two churches all summer was attended by Gretchen Harrington and her siblings. So the, the Bible studies every morning would start at Zanstra's church between 9.30 and 10, and then the kids would be transported to uh, Gretchen Harrington's father's church in adjoining property, uh, and they, the, the camp would conclude there the rest of the day. Uh, on that particular morning, this is August 15th of 1975, um, the uh, Harrington family had just welcomed a new baby the day before on August 14th. So Gretchen had uh, perfect attendance at Bible camp that summer. So her father said to her, you should go anyway. Why don't you walk uh, up the street and I'll watch you from the front door? He did. And I'm sure poor Mr. Harrington is no longer with us. But I'm sure his guilt and conscience never rested easy again because it was his daughter walking alone without her siblings that made her a target for David Zanstra. He was driving by. Uh, pulled the car over, uh, offered her a ride from his statement. And the only evidence we have of it actually transpired at the killing uh, was his statement that he gave to the troopers. So he drove her to a secluded area uh, in, in Marple Township. Uh, asked her to take off her clothing. She refused. According to Zinstra, he then uh, sexually gratified himself. Uh, and then for some ungodly reason, I guess, knowing what evil he had just done, he doubled down and beat her to death. Uh, and the body was recovered, I think, in October of that year uh, in Ridley Creek Park, which is a couple towns over. So apparently he somehow disposed of the body either then or later uh, and uh, left her out in the woods, uh, you know, to, to not rest in peace. He then went back to his church. Gretchen's father, when she didn't show up at uh, his church for the second part of the Bible camp, called the Zanstras. Mrs. Zanstra put her husband on the phone. They said we. she left here earlier, uh, and David Zanstra then called the police for the Harrington family. He knew what he had done, but he wouldn't admit it at the time. He then, if you can believe this, Emily, he then presided at the funeral the little girl some days later. Now, you have to remember the police from all of our adjoining areas. We have, we have 42 different police departments in this county, but we all work together. Um, they were all searching for this girl. This was you know, a horrific thing. There were volunteers in the community. This lasted for days until the body was finally found weeks later in October. But there were, I, I have police officers now who are telling me they remembered as young patrol officers being out searching everywhere uh, looking for this young girl. Um, obviously, when they found her body, it was heartbreaking. Um, but, you know, at that point, the investigation sort of stalled out. Uh, and, you know, Zanstra uh, soon left the area. Uh, he became he transferred to a different church. I think he's gone to California, uh, New Jersey, 
Georgia, Texas, maybe some other stops in between. Uh, when our troopers found him uh, a couple weeks ago, he was in Marietta, Georgia. Uh, and that's where they reached out to him. And I want to just give, if I could, a shout out to the law enforcement community of Cobbs County, Georgia. As soon as our troopers told them what they were attempting to do to find him and interview him, uh, they got great cooperation from the Cobbs County law enforcement uh, community. Uh, they got Mr. Zantra to come to a, an interview voluntarily. Uh, and then he gave the statements he gave that are the basis of the criminal charges we brought first degree murder. And Jack, to that point, the Pennsylvania State Police are, it is ongoing at this moment that they have asked anyone with additional information about this defendant's activities while he was living in Texas, Plano, Texas, or Marietta, Georgia, to please come to them and provide any information, even if you are not sure if it will be helpful to please contact the Pennsylvania State Police, because indeed, uh, his nefarious behavior in Pennsylvania um, might have followed him to those other states as well. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. So now going back, part of what as well struck me about this case is your description where, you know, there was the before and there was after. And you've mentioned growing up in that area and how it affected there was life before Gretchen Harrington was murdered or went missing and life after, which was less innocent and um, less joyful in that community. So can you describe that for us? And can you also share what it's like, given that you grew up there and remember that, what is it like to be the prosecuting attorney 48 years later, for that same pastor that changed the world of an entire community in a horrible way. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. So, you know, we're a large county, but we're made up of small towns. We're all small communities. So, the people who were alive at that time, uh, it, it was sort of not only a scary thing because you know we live in a suburban, safe community. We live outside of the big city of Philadelphia, and so people always believed, especially back then. Um, before the 24-hour news shows us every crime that happens anywhere in America. Uh, we always believed that we were safe. Uh, and it shocks people. And it did shock people at the time to think, wow, there could be evil people living amongst us. Uh, and that's the reality. That's the reality that we were all closed in our minds to at the time. But I think that the, from the folks who grew up there afterwards and who heard about it and from the folks who were living there then, there's always this sort of gnawing idea that some member of our community is missing and we're not whole, right? And I think that's certainly what's true in the law enforcement community. One of the things I think people who aren't involved in law enforcement don't understand is how personally law enforcement people take these kind of serious, violent crimes, <laughs> particularly one where this person is obviously a monster picking up an eight-year-old girl and, and, and disposing of her body after brutally murdering her. Um, we not only want to find justice for her, we want to keep everybody else in the community safe. That's our job. That's what we swore to do. Uh, and for a lot of, especially the detectives who work on these cases, uh, it becomes a gnawing piece of themselves because they get to be close to the family. They get to be close to people in the community and they feel their pain. And when they can't give them an answer, uh, we can't bring that person to justice. 
it's really, really takes a toll on people. It takes a toll, obviously, on the Harrington family. You can only imagine what her siblings and her parents and everyone connected with the Harrington family felt like for the last 48 years. God love them all. But it also affected the community in a similar way, but particularly the law enforcement community in Marple Township. Um, they always wanted to be able to put this case to close it and to bring the person to justice. Um, being the prosecutor, I'm just proud that I get to work with people who are as great as troopers uh, Martin and Trey. Uh, I'm hugely proud of the law enforcement officers and what they do every single day to protect every single one of us. They don't stop. They care about every single person in our community equally. Uh, They understand, again, from faith, many of them, that we're all God's children. He loves us all and that we're all responsible for each other. Uh, And that's why we got into this business in the first place. So for us to be able to say that we're bringing this monster to justice and maybe exercising some of those demons from 48 years ago, that's really it's powerful. Um, but we still have our job to do. We will give him the fairest trial possible uh, and the chips will fall where they may. But I believe he's guilty and I believe we're going to hold him accountable here in Delaware County. As I said, I think he deserves to die in jail. And to confirm at this moment, he's being held without bail. So he is currently in uh, Georgia where he's currently incarcerated awaiting. We're going to get into the extradition issue in a moment. And, you know, part of when you have communities that are rooted in faith and people that are rooted in faith, Jack, part of, in my opinion, what is so deeply perverted about this monster and this case um, is the multi-layer of it being a pastor. That's someone that the community trusts so deeply that the heartbreaking detail of him presiding over her funeral when he's responsible and the trust that families place in this individual for so many milestones and as a pillar of the community, they trust their children in this camp. It's just revolting. And that pain, I'm sure, has such a ripple effect on the generations. Um, So let's go back then because I'm interested in, you know, the, the confidential informant who spent the night at uh, the defendant's house with his daughter. She woke up to him to being groped. She brought it up to his daughter. And it's my understanding that per her diary that his daughter said, oh yeah, he does that sometimes. And that she proceeded to then record in her diary that he, she used the word creepy or, or some conjugation yeah. of creepy to describe him. And that she wrote in the diary that she thought he was the one responsible when Gretchen went missing. Can you explain to viewers about, was it that the diary was not acknowledged or found 48 years ago? Or was it that she wasn't spoken to? Because you mentioned, you know, in the, when the two troopers resurrected the case now, they re-interviewed these witnesses. So had she been interviewed and was the diary overlooked or tell us how it how that happened. Great question. Unfortunately, I can't tell you a, a ton about what happened in 1975. Um, and the girl that you're, you're, you're ter- talking about, the confidential informant, she was a young child. I don't know if she even told her parents what she wrote in her diary, let alone the police. I, I can't mm. vouch for that. Um, but what I can tell you is that these two troopers decided they were going to interview everybody possible. And again, I don't know if she had been interviewed in 1975 or not or some years past, but they followed every single thread. So if they interviewed you and you mentioned me and this 
Emily, as you know, this often will happen in cold cases is people will remember a fact now that they didn't remember then. Mm -hmm. So partly it could be that as well. I really wish I had a better answer for you. I, I, Andy Martin would probably know best uh, about how they, they came to, to, to talk to her. Um, I'm sure the officers, the Marple police in 1975, um, you know, did everything they thought possible uh, to, to solve the murder then. Um, but this is why I think it takes a special kind of investigator on these cold cases. There, there is a lot of technology and Trooper Martin has solved another cold case for us just last year using a different technology that wasn't available uh, for DNA back in 1975. But this is just different. This one here, he's just, it's old fashioned police work. He just left. He would not leave any stone unturned. He asked the right questions to the right people. uh, And he not only got what you're saying, uh, you you know, this, this, this um, lead from her diary saying, oh my God, you know, I wrote this back then about uh, how I thought he might have been involved in, in, a, in a potential kidnapping. Um, but he then took the, the further step and actually went to Georgia. And mm-hmm. at that point, Mr. Zanstra could have just, you know, denied the opportunity to speak to the troopers. Uh, but he willingly gave a statement. We are a little bit thankful for him doing that. I think it was, as Trooper Trey said, an opportunity for him maybe to clear his conscience to some degree. Um, but, you know, it, these cases sometimes evolve, whether it's 48 years or 48 days. Sometimes investigations get stuck and we just need a little break, something that we didn't know before to, to, to come to our attention that can lead a good investigator uh, to a conclusion. So to your point, Emily, that you made earlier, uh, it, it's really a great point. What the, the confidential informant wrote in her diary in September of 1975 was there was another young lady in Marple Township uh, who it, it reported being somebody attempting to kidnap her. And so what the young lady that who became our confidential informant wrote in her diary on that day, a month later, September 15th of 1975, is she thought that it could be Mr. Z who tried to kidnap this other girl, Holly, and that she also believed he could have been the one who kidnapped Gretchen, who was still missing at the time. So you're exactly right. It was that entry in the diary that really gave us, uh, and gave the troopers especially, the idea that Mr. Z is the prime target. You mentioned the members of the Harrington family. Um, regarding the members of the Sansra family, are you aware whether the troopers interviewed the defendant's daughter, the one that had been featured in the diary that was friends with the confidential informant? Has she provided testimony at all? Is not, she estranged? Not to my knowledge. Not to my knowledge. Um, you know, the Zanstra family was no longer living here. Right. Like any of them. Um, so I think when the troopers uh, developed the lead that he was a suspect, they went to Georgia and spoke to him. And I don't think there. I don't think any member of the Zanstra family has has wanted to speak as of yet to law enforcement. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. The defendant is now eighty three years old. We talked about how, as he awaits trial, he is being held without bail there in Georgia. He's waived his extradition. Can you explain for listeners what that means and what is going on between Pennsylvania and Georgia? Sure. He, uh, so, you know, when an individual commits a capital crime, 
uh, or any serious crime in a and it commits it in the state and then goes to a different state, as has happened here. Um, there's a process called extradition where we have to go to the courts down there, present our document charging him with this crime and ask him to be extradited, meaning brought made available for law enforcement in Delaware County to come get him uh, and bring him back to Pennsylvania to face justice here. It's an agreement between the 50 sovereign states that we're all going to do this. There are built-in due process pieces to that. That's why you actually have to present documentation uh, that a, a judge will look at and say, yep. Uh, now, in this case, Zanstra originally decided to waive his extradition proceeding, there's been a, some hiccups in that since then. Uh, counsel in Georgia is now moved to withdraw the waiver. And so there might actually have to be a hearing in Georgia uh, before we can get him. But however long it takes doesn't really matter uh, at this point. Um, we intend to bring him to Pennsylvania to face justice. Uh, Governor Shapiro is going to sign, a, if he hasn't already today, a warrant which will be given to the governor of Georgia uh, to fulfill all of our legal obligations to say this man is wanted in Pennsylvania for the commission of a capital crime. And we're asking our sister sovereign in Georgia to release him to us. We're going to take whatever steps are needed to be done through the to give him due process in Georgia. And he will be given due process once he arrives in Pennsylvania as well. I want to make sure everybody realizes this is all being done according to the law. Uh, nobody's, uh, you know, right, rights are being violated. This is something that happens on a daily basis. Extradition is just a simple process to bring people back to a state uh, where they've committed a, a, a serious crime. And we intend to follow this through no matter how long it takes. There's a reason why you're sitting in your chair and I'm in mine, because you have clearly so much more grace and um, the highest character and honor. Because when I hear that, you know, I, I'm like, what what more of our tax dollars are going to be wasted while an 83-year-old who has confessed to a heinous crime, you know, but you're right. It is all due process and his counsel absolutely should ensure all T's are crossed and I's dighted, if only to ensure that on appeal, it's not overturned. So, uh, it, you know, otherwise it's difficult to hear because I, I frankly think uh, that time is of the essence because of his age that I would like for that final bit of justice to be levied um, against him and foreclosure for the family and community. Um, can you explain for us, he's currently being charged with criminal homicide, murder of the first, second, third degree, as well as kidnapping of a minor and the possession of an instrument of crime. Can you explain for viewers the possession of an instrument of crime charge? Yeah, I, I think that relates to, uh, you know, he, he gave a statement where he said he, he beat her to death. Um, we think he used an instrument to do that, you know, whether it was a rock or, you know, in his statement, he's, he said he did it with his hands. And it's just, we don't think that was quite truthful. Um, but in any event, that's that's the, the least uh, important charge uh, on the criminal complaint. The fact that he kidnapped her and obviously all the homicide. And, and what we do is we charge homicide from first all the way to third. Uh, you will stand. He will stand trial. Uh, as first for first degree murder. And it will be up to the jury to decide whether or not we've proven first, second or third degree. Uh, and again, Emily, at his age, it doesn't really matter what we find him guilty of. We need to, as a community, to uphold our own standards, to give him all of the due process that he's due. 
that he didn't give to Gretchen Harrington back in August 15th of 1975, for example. But then when we do convict him, and I feel confident we will convict him, he's going to die in jail. And that's where he belongs. He's a monster. He cannot be trusted in our community, even at 83. And the long arm of justice never ceases. If you kill somebody in our country, we're going to work doggedly until we bring you to justice. There's no statute of limitations for homicide, nor should there ever be. Um, people who are killing, it's a very small number of people who are so evil, they will purposefully take another person's life. They need to be held accountable to God and to the law. And finally, before we close, I just want to center Gretchen for a moment. And what does the community and her family remember about her? And, and what was she like? What was Gretchen like? Just just a wonderful child. I mean, the family released a beautiful statement afterwards. They, of course, want privacy and they want to just reflect on her. But, you know, a, a bright, caring young woman. Uh, again, perfect attendance at Bible camp. She's eight years old. Her whole future is ahead of her. She's got a brand new sibling at home. She was from a close-knit family. Um, it's the American dream right there. Uh, and uh, you're exactly right, Emily. It's really all about her uh, and what was stolen from her, what was stolen from her family. Uh, and we in law enforcement and people like you and, and the community who care, what we're, all we're trying to do is give them some level of comfort that there is a justice system that they can count on. Uh, when something horrible happens, we will be there uh, and we will hold those people accountable. And hopefully that deters other people from doing other kind of violent acts if they know we're there, uh, that we're constantly you know, on that wall, guarding our communities to the best we can. So uh, I, I'm really glad you you remembered at the end of the day, this is really about a little girl remembering how wonderful she is. And, and the fact that I believe, truly believe that she can now rest in peace because we know she's in a better place. But now I think she knows that her fellow human beings are, 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 are looking to bring justice for her in her name. Jack, thank you so much. Thank you for your service. Thank you for representing, truly representing the people in this matter. And um, we will absolutely look forward to the correct conclusion to this 50-year-old case and a heartfelt expression of gratitude to the Pennsylvania State Troopers that never gave up. And we are all honored by you joining us today and sharing this perspective, especially as it moves forth. Um, and all of those who serve day in and day out in uniform and out on behalf of all of us. So thank you. Thank you, Emily. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.